Good morning. I was playing volleyball yesterday and I reminded myself why I don't play volleyball anymore. All right, we're continuing on with Galatians. Motives and choices. Motives and choices. Why do you do what you do? Many times why people do things is more important than what they do. For example, wouldn't it mean more to you if somebody gave you a present because they appreciated what you do as opposed to waiting you know, for that obligatory birthday present or Christmas present? And how about the choices you make? We make dozens of choices every day. Many are insignificant, such as what do I have for dinner, what do I wear, and others are more important, like where do I work, where do I go to school, or that all-important question, who do I marry? Many choices have no real consequences, but some are life-changing. I'm going to talk a little bit today about some motives and choices that affected the Galatians, but before I do, I'm going to do a little bit of recap on what we've covered so far in the series, so that just to catch everybody up. Uh, The letter of Galatians is called the Angry Epistle because there's several little points in there that it shows that Paul was really upset. And he was upset because the Galatians were being led astray or someone was trying to lead them astray with a false gospel. And Paul was not mincing any words uh, when he said, because there's only one gospel, and that is Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. Faith in him is all that matters. But someone was preaching. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, Paul says, let him be accursed. Some translations say, let him be damned or let him go to hell. Paul was not mincing words. He was very upset. Paul goes on in chapter, the rest of chapter 1, he gives us a little glimpse into himself. He was a Pharisee. He was very radically committed to keeping the Jewish laws and traditions. He was so zealous that he actually persecuted the church and was trying to destroy Christianity. And then he met Jesus, and his life changed. And he had to go away for three years and reflect on what Jesus meant to him and what that meant for the rest of his life. And then Paul eventually went on to preach the very message that he was trying to stop. And they described him... Sorry, my thumb is a little heavy this morning... uh, And they describe Paul this way at the end of chapter 1. He says, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul had a traumatic uh, experience. When he met Jesus, he changed radically. We go into chapter 2, and Paul tells us, it seems like for the first time, he goes and he talks with the church leaders in Jerusalem. And he presents to them the message that he has been uh, teaching to the Gentiles, and they endorse what he's saying. And it says, they gave to him, uh, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should continue to go to the Gentiles. So they were preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Then we get to the second half of chapter 2, and and that part starts off with Paul having a confrontation with Peter. Peter was acting very inconsistently. He was uh, trying to be friends with the Gentiles, with the non-Jewish believers. But when a conservative group of Jews came from Jerusalem, Peter backs away. He's trying to separate himself. He's trying to please these, uh, these Jews from Jerusalem. And Paul calls him out on it. And Paul uses that 
is uh, a basis for launching into what's the theological core of the book, and that is justification comes by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And Paul then gives us uh, two, verse, or two thoughts, and these are very important passages. He says, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he also says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, just as a way of reminder, when someone is justified, when they put their faith in Christ, when they accept Christ as their Savior, they are justified. That means in God's eyes, God sees them as righteous. Not that they are perfect, not that they ever will be perfect, but God sees them as righteous. And that standing will never change. And that was the point that Paul was trying to make. You cannot get that standing by keeping the law. So what Paul does is, in chapters 3 and 4, he then presents a series of arguments as to, to backing up why we are justified by faith and not by keeping the law. In the first part, he talks about experience. He asks them a very interesting question. He says, uh, the miracles that you saw done among you, was that done by faith or was that done by keeping the law? And the answer was, it was through faith. Paul then goes on to talk about Abraham, where he says, Abraham was justified by faith and it was um, reckoned to him as righteousness. And so the Jews, whose father was Abraham, you know, Paul's pointing them to Abraham, but, but implied in that whole argument is that Abraham came before the law existed. So that was another point that faith all along has been what pleases God. And then last week, Pastor Tim was talking about the law. The law had its purpose. The law has some good points, but it has some limitations. And in the end, the law is ultimately pointing us to something better, which is Jesus. And that's uh, what, again, faith is what brings justification through, by Jesus. So the last two arguments I'm going to talk about, I really couldn't figure out how to combine them, so I'm going to give you like two little mini-sermonettes. But the one is a personal argument where he's relating to his uh, audience the personal connection that he had with them. And then the, the last argument is an analogy, or excuse me, an allegory of uh, the story of Abraham and his two sons. So let me, uh, let me get started here. And uh, do you guys hear in feedback from your... I'm not sure, is it me? Ray, Sam, anything I can do? No? All right. Did that stop? <laughs> it's Sunday and I'm up here. Technical problems abound. Uh, all right. Paul starts off this series of arguments kind of on a rough note. He, he calls the Galatians foolish. Okay? So he comes full circle. And when he does this personal argument, he, he's referring to them as his... As There we go. He says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He's referring to them as brothers, as friends, as equals. So that's the counterbalance where he started this whole series of arguments about uh, calling them foolish. So Paul is just saying, hey, look at things the way I see things. I'm gonna and he's going to reflect over the next couple of verses the tender relationship that he had with them. 
He goes on to say, it says, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you. Paul really, if you read that, he really wasn't intending to go to the Galatians, but just somehow happenstancically he ended up coming to them. As opposed to the Judaizers, those were the people who were trying to lead them astray. They were specifically targeting. Paul just kind of wandered into their midst. He came into them in a state of weakness, not in strength because he was sick. And all he was doing was, he wasn't doing anything for personal gain. He was just doing it to preach the gospel to them. And Paul fondly remembers that, uh, and he cherishes their acceptance of him. He says, but you receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Despite his illness, the Galatians readily accepted him. Unlike many in that day, if someone was sick, they were, people were very superstitious. If you were sick, they thought that the gods were cursing you or punishing you. And Paul didn't get any of that. They readily accepted him for who he was. They accepted him as an angel. They accepted him as he, if he was Jesus himself. And then he goes on to say, he says, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And if you think about that literally, that's a very powerful statement. But really what that's saying is that the Galatians were willing to sacrifice anything for Paul. And many scholars think that Paul, if you remember, he had this thorn in the flesh that the thorn in the flesh may have been he had some kind of eye disorder. Uh, I forget the name of it, but the, the eyes kind of weep and seep, and it's kind of disgusting. But they think that Paul may have had an eye issue based upon these words about the Galatians exchanging their eyes for his. But also, in the end of the book of Galatians, in chapter 6, Paul says, See with what big letters I am writing the epistle to you. In other words, somebody with bad eyes would be writing in big letters. And also, other of Paul's epistles were written, uh, he dictated them as someone else wrote to them. So Paul may have had, his thorn in the flesh may have been his eyes, and that's why he said this, but um, nevertheless, what he does is he's telling us that the Galatians loved him so much that they were willing to sacrifice anything for him. So then we get to the next passage, and, and Paul kind of like says, hey, have I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? And the truth he's talking about is the previous arguments about pointing them to justification by faith and not by keeping the law. And he was telling them the truth, hoping that they would recognize that it was, it was for their own good. He was not flattering them, and he was not trying to manipulate them like the Gentiles were. He was just simply giving them the truth. And the, the manipulation that he was uh, alluding to was in 17, verse 17 and 18, he says, they, the Judaizers, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. It's kind of a, a weird thing. The Judaizers were practicing some sort of religious snobbery or exclusivism, and it was kind of a reverse psychology. They were trying to tell the, the Galatians that the Galatians really weren't good enough to be a part of them, and, and hoping that that would motivate them to keep the law so that they would want to join the Judaizers. And um, Paul says, no, I, I wasn't manipulating you. I was simply coming to you. I was preaching the gospel out of love. And we see that in the last verses of this section. He says, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you, but now, with you now and to change my tune, for I am perplexed about you. He refers to them as his children, as a father talking to his child and being in labor, you know, a mother... Uh, 
motherly figure. So he's like a parent talking to him, a, figure, a symbol of love and intimacy. And also the, the allusion to being in labor, you know, if you've given birth, that's a sacrifice, that's a pain. Paul was telling him, I, I went through a lot for you guys, and I hope you recognize it, and I really wish to be with you. So that was Paul's tone, that was his attitude through this whole thing. And um, it's probably the weakest of the arguments that he provides, but um, personal touches are very important. See, when we do ministry, it always comes down to a personal touch. To quote one of my professors from seminary, he says, and this is the first fill-in in your blank, or blanks to fill-in, it says that people don't care how much you know until you, they know how much you care. So you could give them all the arguments, all the information in the world, but if they don't think you care, they're not going to listen to you. And related closely to this, uh, I picked this up in a movie, I forget what the movie was several years ago, but what's their angle? If you don't know what someone's angle is, you're probably in trouble. If you don't know what someone's angle is, you're probably in trouble. Everyone's got a motive, right? We've all been in an unpleasant circumstance of having to buy a new car, right? What's the motivation of the car salesman? He wants to sell you a car, right? He's maybe not interested in whether you can afford it or whether it's the right car for you, but if you go into that negotiation knowing what his motive is, you can be better prepared. So if you know what people's angle is, what their motive is, you can, you can stay out of trouble. So when we share the gospel, or when we serve or minister to other people, we need to make sure our motives are right. We need to be people of integrity who are, generally, who are genuinely concerned about the people we're serving. Our goal when we share the gospel is not to make our church membership grow. It's not to recruit more talented people to our midst. Our goal, our motive should simply be to point people to Jesus. That's it. And we should do that out of a genuine concern for them. So we end this part of the section. It's a very personal part. I, as you look at the whole overlay of, of the book of uh, Galatians, you know, he started off by calling them fools, and then he, in this section he calls them their friends. Personally, I think that Paul at this point was done addressing, he was finished addressing the Galatians. The next argument, I think, was largely targeted towards the Judaizers, Paul's enemies. And uh, let, me, uh, let me explain a little bit about that. Who is his intended audience? And he goes on in verse uh, 21, he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So he starts this next section by saying, you who want to be under the law. Well, who is that? Well, it could be referring to the, the Galatians who were thinking about believing in Jesus and also keeping the law. But most definitely what he would be referring to would be the Judaizers who put all their emphasis in keeping the law in order to have a right standing with God. Now, Paul knew that the Galatians were in the middle of this tug of war. He visited them, he preached the gospel to them, and then the Judaizers came and they said, well, Paul's not quite right, this is what you need to do. So Paul hears about that, then he writes them the letter to tell them, no, this is, this is the truth. So he knows that they're going to be back and forth, and he realizes that they're probably going to share this letter with the Judaizers. Now, the next, I'll 
I'll get to the story that, that he talks about. It's from the Old Testament, and that probably wouldn't mean a whole lot to the Gentiles. I mean, most, some, many of you are Korean. I'm sure you've got some Korean stories from your uh, you know, myths or legends or whatever that you use to tell stories, and they probably mean something to you, but they wouldn't really mean anything to me. They'd go in one ear and out the other. And the same way with these Judaizers, or the Galatians probably wouldn't care too much about some Old Testament story, but the Judaizers that have much more of an impact. So to me, it appears that Paul's reaching out to them, and I think the point we need to remember is that we cannot forget about reaching out to our enemies. All right? As hard as that is, uh, we cannot forget. Even though they're causing us pain and suffering, we need to reach out, and I really think that that's, that's what Paul was doing. And Paul uses, in the story that he does, it's, it would have been very familiar to the, to the Jews, and the story was, was this, is that, was that Abraham was 85 years old and God said, you're going to have a son. Time went by, he and Sarah did not have a child. Um, Sarah kind of took things into her own hands and said, here, here's my bond servant, Hagar, here Abraham, have a child through her. Now to us that sounds really weird. But back in that day, that was part of the culture. Was, it was just common practice. So Abraham and, and Hagar hook up, and uh, she conceives. And uh, because she's pregnant and Sarah's not, uh, Hagar despises Sarah, and that just creates friction between these two women. And Hagar eventually gives birth to a son, Ishmael. Fast forward about 14 years, God comes to Abraham again and says, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And Sarah is 90 years old, Abraham's 99, so um, those of you who have had children, imagine being 99 years old and having a child. So basically, it's a miracle. Sarah and Abraham conceive, and they conceive Isaac, and God tells them that the covenant that he made with Abraham was going to continue not through Ishmael, but it was going to continue through Isaac. So as the children continue to grow, Ishmael and Isaac, they're under the same roof at this time. Well, Ishmael starts picking on, mocking, tormenting Isaac. And Sarah doesn't like it. Sarah tells Abraham, tell Hagar and Ishmael to leave. And Abraham does that, and he directs them, and they, and they leave. So that's the background of the story of the two sons, Ishmael and, and Isaac. And what Paul does is he uses that to to set up this allegory, and he says, regarding the two sons, for example, Ishmael, he was born of a bondwoman. Isaac was born of a free woman, Sarah. One was born by fleshly, natural self-effort. The other was born of a promise. More it was a miraculous conception of sorts. One represents Mount Sinai, or where the law comes from. The other son represents a new Jerusalem, a new covenant, a new hope, a new future. One represents or brings slavery. The other one represents freedom. One was a persecutor. The other was the persecuted. Just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, the Judaizers were persecuting uh, the Galatians. One was an outcast, and one was an heir. So you don't even have to know the story, but as Paul presents it, obviously you want to be associated with the one on the right, not the one on the left. Now, an interesting thing is that when I told you the story, 
I was giving you all the names and details. When Paul writes this in Galatians, it's interesting. He only writes Abraham's name once. He never mentions Sarah, never mentions Ishmael. He mentions Isaac once, but he mentions Hagar twice. So who is this Hagar woman? Now again, if you're a Jew, you're going to be very familiar with this story. The name Hagar would have struck a chord with the Jews because Hagar was an Egyptian. Now, if you're a Jew and you think of Egypt, the first thing that's going to come to your mind is the fact that the children of Israel were enslaved in captivity in Egypt once. That's the first thing that's going to come to your mind because it's repeated numerous times in the Old Testament that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they would have associated Hagar with Egypt. So the Jews have been thinking about being enslaved. Now, Hagar, being an Egyptian, when, when Abraham cast her out and Ishmael out, she most likely and probably went back to Egypt. And we, we can say that with some degree of confidence because in Genesis it says that, you know, when Ishmael grew up, Hagar chose a wife for Ishmael from the women of Egypt. So to do that, they had to go back to Egypt. Now, again, the Jews are thinking going back to Egypt. No Jew would ever want to go back to Egypt. So basically, Paul was painting a mental picture that by going back to the law, the Jews in a spiritual sense were going back to Egypt. So this would have driven home Paul's point of why would you choose to live as a slave when you can live as a free person? Paul wants everybody to be free from the burden and curse of keeping the law. He wants them to live a life that's led by the Holy Spirit. Slavery means to be bound to the perfection and keeping the law in order to be justified in God's eyes. Freedom, you meant you were no longer bound by the external trappings of the law, nor did you have to live in fear of perfectly keeping the law. Paul knew how radical these Judaizers were because he was a very radical Pharisee. Paul was holding out hope that the Judaizers, too, could be transformed like he was when he met Jesus. Today, Jesus can, and he still does, transform lives. I would like to tell you the story of a gentleman named Masab Hussein Yusuf. Masab was the son of one of the founders of the Hamas terrorist group. His father was uh, an imam in the community in the West Bank of Palestine. That's a, a Muslim priest or pastor. And he was kind of the salt of the earth. He took care of the people, was very concerned about meeting their needs. Everybody came to him with their troubles, and he would help them. But over time, uh, Masab's father became more and more radicalized, and he drifted away from his humanitarian efforts. And ultimately, uh, Masab's father became a terrorist. Now, when Masab was growing up, like many boys in Palestine, he wanted to be a fighter to help liberate the Palestinians from the Jews. Masab was first arrested at the age of 10 years old for throwing rocks at uh, Israeli settlers. I lost my place. He was further arrested numerous times, incarcerated, and as his father's eldest son, Masab was seen as the heir apparent to be the Hamas leader as he became more and more important part of that organization. 
One day, Masab was captured by the Israelis, and to make a long story short, Masab became a spy for the Israelis to spy on the Hamas. The information, the Israelis used the information that he provided to attack the terrorists before the terrorists could attack the Israelis. And many of these attacks were lethal. They had killed many of the terrorists. Now, during this time, in the midst of all the craziness in the West Bank, somebody invited Masab to a Bible study, and he becomes a Christian. So Masab, he goes to the, he, he's talking with the Israelis. He says, I'm not going to help you anymore if you're going to kill the terrorists. If you arrest them or capture them, I'll help you. The Israelis realize what a powerful asset he was, and they agreed to change their tactics. They took great risk to capture the Israelis instead of shooting missiles at them to kill them from a distance. So the Israelis put a lot on the line um, to keep uh, Masab and uh, to use his information. Um, and they did just that. They would go out and they would capture the, the terrorists. But while being a spy, the information that Masab supplied provided dozens or prevented dozens of suicide attacks and assassination of Israeli citizens. It exposed numerous Hamas cells and assisted Israel in hunting down many militants, including, <laughs> including the incarceration of his own father. Eventually, Masab was found out as a spy. They had to take him out of Palestine, and now he lives in the United States. Masab is a committed Christian, and Track with me here, I'll get to my point. His insights into Islam are very powerful. He said that Islam is a dangerous religion because you never know when a Muslim will cross the line from being a moderate to a radical. He said that Muslims are driven to become radical because they never know if they're good enough in Allah's eyes. The only way to guarantee getting to heaven is to become more radical and to die as a jihadist. So Masab, even as a radical Muslim, was transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus. Masab says this, he says, that despite his conversion to Christianity, he is against religion and does not adhere to any denomination of Christianity. He has stated, quote, religion steals freedom, kills creativity, turns us into slaves, and turns us against one another. Yes, I am talking about Christianity as well as Islam. He says, most Christians I have seen seem to have missed the point that Jesus redeemed us from religion. Religion is nothing more but man's attempts to reach God. Whether it's Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Animism, anyism, Religion can't save mankind. Only Jesus could save mankind through his death and resurrection. And Jesus is the only way to God. If you have a chance to read his book, I would highly recommend it. Unfortunately, many Christians today become legalistic by following rules and living in fear of God, never knowing that they're good enough. These legalistic Christians unnecessarily impose restrictions on themselves and others. 
These restrictions come in all kinds of forms. Maybe it's a position you have on alcohol or dancing, what kind of movies you see, what kind of fashion you wear, how you spend your money, your recreational activities, even your church activities. Some people think they need to go to church every time the doors open or celebrate some religious holiday. Or it may be baptism. Some people think that you have to be sprinkled and other people have to be dunked and they just make a big issue about the ritual. But the issue is not the ritual. It's, that's just the symbol. You need to understand the meaning behind the ritual. And that has escaped a lot of people because they're so focused on what they do. And I have to confess to you that uh, I am a recovering legalist. Now, I want to say this. It's okay to have personal convictions about some of those issues that I mentioned. You may have grown up in an with a family with an alcoholic, and I can understand if you don't drink, and I respect that, and that's fine. Um, or maybe certain movies. You don't want to be tempted. You don't want the seed planted in your mind to tempt you or to lead you astray, and you have to draw a line. And, and you need to come to peace between you and God and what your convictions are. Now, your convictions are personal. Your convictions are your own standard. They are not to be confused with the absolutes of the Christian faith, the authority of Scripture, the deity of Jesus, his death and resurrection is necessary for our salvation, mankind's need of salvation. Those are non-negotiables. Those are absolutes of the faith. Our convictions are what we come to peace with God over how we're going to live our lives. So sometimes we take these convictions or these rules too far. And your next fill-in on your blank is, or your next blanks to fill in, excuse me. These self-imposed rules become wrong when they become a measure of your standing with God. They are imposed on others or they build unnecessary barriers between people. These convictions become wrong when they become a measure of your standing with God imposed upon others or build unnecessary barriers with people. Your standing with God is solely based on what Jesus did for each and every one of us. I am righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus did. No matter what I do or what I I cannot earn that. That standing is a gift. Am I going to sin? Am I going to make mistakes? Yes. Does that hurt God? Does that disappoint God? Yes. It breaks my fellowship with God, but it does not change my standing with God. It's just like you have a fight with your spouse. You're still married, but your relationship is strained, so you need to make it right. So we need to repent of our sins, ask God to forgive us, and we move on. Our standing does not change. When we impose our convictions on others, it kind of makes us judges, and we can look down our noses at people, we can judge people wrongly, we can have a sense of superiority, and that is not a healthy condition to be in. When I talk about building unnecessary barriers between people, I guess maybe the best way to say this is, let the truth be the barrier and not you. All right, and by that, what I mean is whether you're dealing with non-Christians or Christians and whatever the topic is, speak the truth lovingly, kindly, gently. Don't do it with an attitude of condescension, condemnation, because what people see is your attitude, and that's what builds a barrier. Let the truth 
be the barrier. Yes, Jesus Christ is the only way. That is a very absolute non-negotiable truth. And if people don't like that truth, that's their issue, not yours. But don't come off condemning and condescending the people who want to believe something else. You just need to state the truth. So we can choose to live by rules or we can choose to live by faith. One leads to slavery, the other leads to freedom. And of course, we all want to live in freedom. So what does that mean? What are one of the aspects of living in freedom? And I hope you, you, you take this home with you, is that we can live knowing God loves us unconditionally as we are, but that he loves us so much that he won't let us remain in that condition. So that's another fill-in on your blank. We know we can live, and this is living in freedom, live knowing that God loves us unconditionally as we are, but that he loves us so much that he won't let us remain in that condition. All right? And what that means is that we're going to change, but the motivation behind that change is internal. The motivation for change comes from within. It's not externally from the law or from others. Motivation for change comes from within, and it's not external from the law or from others. The motivation is the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're given the Holy Spirit. He will work to bring about change. Now, what change are we talking about? We're talking about becoming, each and every one of us, becoming more and more like Jesus. Or stating it a different way, with a little bit different perspective, is we become less concerned about ourselves, and we are more concerned about ministering and reaching out and loving others. Life gives us many choices. So is it slavery or is it freedom? Is it keeping the rules or is it living by faith? You have the choice. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you.